Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Jack Crow, news editor at National Review. He covered former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's speech in the Reagan Foundation's Time for Choosing speaker series. Roger and Jack discuss Pompeo's speech, as well as the speeches from former Vice President Mike Pence and former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. They also considered the dynamics of the 2024 GOP presidential primary. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Jack Crow, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Jack, uh, many of our listeners and viewers uh, are probably familiar with your work. Uh, news editor at National Review Online. Uh, National Review is, of course, well known to uh, the conservative world, having been founded by William F. Buckley in, in 1955 and really been uh, kind of a key uh, area or publication for conservative, conservative intellectuals. Um, when did you join National Review? So I joined about three years ago, um, moved up when they were starting a news desk, kind of getting it off the ground. So I started as a writer and then became an editor and we've hired and since hired a few people and we got a small news operation. Obviously, it's still primarily a journal of opinion, but. So, yeah, so just take a second on that. Um, it might surprise folks that National Review only uh, put together a news desk uh, a, a few years ago. Um, what took so long and what does that say about National Review and its kind of approach uh, in terms of uh, delivering its readership, what they're looking for? Sure. So, yeah, just to give people a bit of a background, um, National Review historically uh, has been based in New York and has had kind of a smaller D.C. office. Um, and through that D.C. office, they've developed uh, some some impressive reporters, um, people like Tim Alberta and Bob Costa, um, who went on to do great things at, at mainstream publications. Um, but there was never a designated news um, desk. Uh, there was never a um, subset of the organization dedicated to reporting and, and doing the news. Um, and I think what, what National Review and other outlets on the right have started to realize is that um, as the media becomes uh, kind of uh, more segmented um, and news reporting uh, becomes kind of more ideological across the board, uh, I think organs of the right need to have their own ways of gathering facts. Um, this is something Tucker Carlson talked about at CPAC, you know, 10 years ago now, um, the need for uh, solid, credible, um, conservative news gathering. Um, and I think that's what National Review is, is trying to do. That's what we're trying to get off the ground here. So you got to marry the National Review brand with some news reporting, and, and it's the type of trusted uh, reporting that conservatives are looking for and perhaps not realized by, other, by mainstream publications. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the kind of digital only right wing outlets, um, you know, they're deep into blogging, there's a lot of hot takes going on. Um, but I think we could all benefit from um, some more reporting that's, you know, solid fact based um, stuff. Less hot takes, more solid fact based, but from a trusted conservative voice. Got it. Well, Jack, you came out to California uh, to the Reagan Library recently to cover a speech delivered by former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, for those uh, listening and, and watching, uh, the Reagan Library launched uh, a few months ago something called the Time for Choosing Speaker Series. That series uh, set up really to focus on the future of the Republican Party, to have leading voices from the Republican Party talk about why uh, those individuals are conservatives. What should the party stand for? Uh, where is the party succeeding? Where is the party failing? Uh, what policies should the party stand for in order to uh, unify the party and, and, and win, frankly, right? Uh, take majorities uh, in the House and the Senate uh, and, and capture the White House. That's the basis for this Time for Choosing series, of course, hearkening back to President Reagan's 1964 speech where uh, he really outlined some of the core conservative principles that guided the Republican Party for decades and to a certain extent still today as part of the conversation, ongoing conversation we've had here on, on Reaganism. Um, Jack, give me your impressions of just the setting and, and, and the series itself that the Reagan Foundation has put out here in the Time for Choosing series. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the, the library and, and the setting, um, just incredibly impressive, just the natural beauty um, the architecture of the buildings. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time in Southern California. So when I think of Los Angeles, um, it's definitely, uh, I definitely didn't have uh, the realization of kind of how beautiful and rural uh, the area would be that we were in. So that was, that was a really nice surprise um, and really impressive. And then the speaker series itself was great. I mean, to be in a venue like that, um, you know, relatively small uh, group of people getting to hear from someone who's going to be, you know, a newsmaker for uh, the foreseeable future, certainly um, on the right and just in general in American politics um, was really, really illuminating. And I think the timing of it was nice as well, because we're far enough before 2024 that I think um, some of these people who are maybe prospective candidates um, can lay out their, their broader vision without necessarily being too careful because they're not you know, on the precipice of the actual campaign yet. So I think that gives them a little breathing room and, and made the, the speech really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the series is really designed uh, to be nothing like something you would hear in Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina as you know, presidential aspirants get around and, and try to get support for their campaign. It's fundamentally trying to get these, these questions answered by people whose voice matters today and, and perhaps will matter more uh, as we approach uh, 2024. Um, well, the one that you were out there for uh, was Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We've also had two other speakers prior to Secretary Pompeo's speech. We had Vice President Mike Pence and we had uh, uh, former Speaker of the House uh, Paul Ryan also. We'll get to their speeches later later on in our, in our conversation. But give us your impression of, of the Pompeo speech. Uh, your, your headline in National Review said, GOP must not shy away from America's sins in battle against racial essentialism. That was That's the headline that your editors uh, went with. Uh, give us your overall impression and uh, perhaps highlight for us uh, maybe what surprised you or what wasn't what you expected when you uh, were driving up to the Reagan Library. 
Sure. Yeah. So I think um, you can kind of glean from that headline. Um, what stuck out to me was Pompeo's insistence that people on the right, conservatives, um, need to have a frank understanding of history that doesn't whitewash um, our sins, um, that deals honestly uh, with the ways that, you know, Americans have at times failed to live up to our founding ideals, um, but casting it in that way, right, as a failure to live up to our founding ideals, which we still need to aspire to, um, rather than rejecting them as some on the left would have it. Um, and I think this is effective for a couple reasons. Um, the most common kind of rhetorical uh, trope or talking point that you'll see trotted out um, by the left when they're talking about things like critical race theory in schools and, the, and kind of racial essentialism and this 1619 project view of American history is that um, conservatives don't wanna talk about slavery. They don't wanna talk about Jim Crow. They only wanna talk about 1776 and how great the American Revolution was and kind of whitewash things. So I think by kind of preempting that criticism, Pompeo was doing an effective job at saying, hey, we wanna be honest about our history, but we also want to um, continue to have a, a common national identity that we can all be proud of. Um, and, and view those things, slavery, Jim Crow, as failures to live up to those ideals, instead of saying those ideals were never genuine in the first place. Um, yeah, so I mean, let me just kind of follow up on that point because I guess, and I saw this in some of the comments on, on your article on National Review, that some people would have preferred uh, Mike Pompeo and perhaps a conservative speaker not to even accommodate any discussion about how we should deal with our past other than celebrating what a great country we are. Uh, that, you know, I guess the view is we teach history. Uh, we've always taught history, um, you know, the good and the bad, but let's not even accommodate space for, uh, you know, for kind of this moment we're in where you have people on the left, obviously, uh, you know, 619 Project is kind of the, the, the paradigmatic example uh, trying to, in the view of many, rewrite history. Um, do you think Pompeo was trying to kind of march down the middle of the road? Uh, why was this the right device or a good device for him to pursue, other than he seems to be genuine in the way that this is the way he thinks about American history? And obviously, we'll, we'll get to this, but it's a kind of re religiously informed way about dealing with the past and thinking about uh, our country's past. Sure, yeah. I think, um, I think the reason it's effective is because most people, most voters, most Americans um, are not highly partisan in the way that maybe some commenters on this article are or other kind of political professionals, activists who tend to see things, including history, in highly ideological terms, right? So if the left is saying X, we need to say Y and we can't, you know, give an inch, we can't give them any ground because that will hurt our position. I think the way most Americans think about this and, and the way they kind of want their kids to be taught in schools is, um, you know, America has done some incredible things um, and has at times failed to live up to its ideals. And I think they want an honest accounting of that. So I think having a conservative come out and reassure them and say, listen, we want to deal honestly with these subjects. Um, I think that could be, I think that could persuade a kind of non-ideological centrist kind of person who says um, one side's telling me, you know, the right doesn't want to deal with this stuff at all. Um, and the right is telling me the left wants everything to be about race. So I think kind of striking that middle ground um, is effective for people who, unlike us, aren't 
highly kind of involved in this stuff from a day-to-day -day perspective. Yeah, uh, good point. Um, do you get the sense that it's going to be uh, an effective way to go about picking up primary victories? Should uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, seek the nomination? I ask this because this issue said in the, in the three events that we've held in the time for share, uh, choosing series, at least, you know, for the uh, Simi Valley, California, Reagan Foundation demographic, um, seems to be the one that gets the most interest of the audience, the one that people are most concerned about, uh, kind of this uh, American, you know, kind of pride and, and history and how we deal with our history. Um, it seems to matter uh, for those who perhaps are not a Washington political insider, but somebody who has a strong conservative Republican identity that would likely go out and vote in a primary. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's really come, I don't want to say it's come out of nowhere because this has kind of been a fight in the background, you know, for years now. But the issue of how do we teach American history and how central should race be to what kids are learning in school has really exploded as, um, you know, like you said, the number one issue for, I think, a lot of people in this country. Um, and I think uh, in particular conservatives, the type of the type of person who votes in a Republican uh, presidential primary um, is someone who's going to be deeply invested in this just because, you know, this is what's being talked about in conservative media on the right um, by politicians. Um, so I think anyone who wants to have a realistic chance at the 2024 nomination needs to think deeply about this issue and, and needs to talk about it. Um, and I think what we saw from Pompeo um, is kind of his early attempts at doing that. Um, and I think somewhat of a blueprint that I think he'll probably end up following. Yeah, I mean, it, it really wasn't a scorch earth, just kind of troll the left approach. I mean, there were elements in there. This, you know, uh, was, was kind of essential his argument were these four virtues, and, and you wrote about this, and perhaps you could comment on it, how uh, more broadly it reflects something of, of Secretary Pompeo. It was, it was more preacher Pompeo than Secretary Pompeo, uh, at least in my experience. You can comment on that. But he talked about four vir virtues are going to be the key, you know, and, and this was after really uh, talking about Frederick Douglass in, in the speech, but he says, number one, virtue is vision. Number two is hope. Number three is gratitude. And number four is forgiveness, you know, fight to overcome what is wrong. Uh, tell us about that and how that kind of were the, the cornerstones of, of his speech, both in terms of the issue we're discussing more broadly as an orientation and approach for the, for the Republican Party. Yeah, that, um, that definitely stuck out to me as well, just because it's such a departure from, I think, the Republican politics of the last, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, Trump would never bring up four virtues, right, in a speech um, and talk about the importance of gratitude and things like that. It's just so antithetical to his style. Um, so I think the fact that Pompeo is someone who obviously could work with Trump um, he could deal with Trump's kind of uh, personality, but he also, um, because of the life that he's lived, because of his biography, I think still has the credibility where he can go up on a stage with a straight face and talk about the importance of individual virtue. Um, and it, it almost struck me as old school, right? It's the kind yeah. of thing that you hear a Republican politician saying, um, you know, in, in, in Reagan's time or, or, or even before that. So I, I, that's what stuck out to me is that this is kind of almost a return to um, the emphasis on individual, um, you know, character 
which you used to hear a ton about from Republicans, and obviously you, you don't much anymore. Um, I think that Pompeo is starting to resurrect that a little bit. You know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Donald Trump, and um, we've had, as I said earlier, three speakers uh, to date. Um, we'll get to Paul Ryan, we'll get to Mike Pence in, in a few minutes, but Secretary Pompeo obviously gave a speech that Donald Trump never would have given. I mean, if we just we just hit on that. Um, right. At the same time, in no way distanced himself at all uh, that I heard from Donald Trump. Uh, to the extent he talked about the Trump administration, it was all about accomplishments, you know, huge applause for moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, for example, Iran deal, a lot of the foreign policy pieces, but it was all grounded in policy achievements right. uh, that happened during the Trump administration. Uh, there was no, I, I don't recall, uh, kind of a strong statement of the party of Trump should continue. The things that the Trump pol you know, political movement delivered uh, will deliver us to the White House again. Contrast that a little bit with what we heard from uh, Vice President Pence. We'll get to that, as I said, in a few minutes. Did that surprise you at all, Jack? Uh, or was it kind of consistent with the way uh, you thought he might deal with his time in the Trump administration, but certainly it wasn't, it wasn't like giving it all, like just, we're going to, I'm, I'm Trump, Trump is me. And, and, and you're, I, I'm in the future because I was one of president Trump's closest uh, advisors and, and, and cabinet officials. Do, do I read that correct? Or do you have a different take? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and I think from a certain standpoint, it's unsurprising that you would see Pompeo lean on and tout the kind of policy achievements and the things that he was directly involved in while serving as Secretary of State, right? That's his most recent yes. on his resume, arguably his most important. Um, but he, what he doesn't want to get wrapped up in is the Capitol riot, the election conspiracy stuff. So I think by avoiding talking about Trump by name and tying himself too closely to the kind of cult of personality that's grown up around Trump, uh, he's kind of walking that line and I think doing a good job of it. And you mentioned Pence. I think Pence is in a little bit of a stickier situation. One, he, he was Trump's vice president, so voters are going to identify him more closely with Trump naturally. But two, I think his background before becoming vice president um, is maybe a little bit less impressive to the average voter. I don't think he necessarily has the kind of resume that Pompeo has where I think it's a little bit easier for Pompeo to kind of say, I'm my own man. And yes, I was in the Trump administration and this is what we did. But I don't think his his identity is as tightly wound with Trump. I kind of agree with you in part. Let me pursue that for just a minute. I, I, it is very clear to me when you have a sign that says Trump Pence, right, from 2016 you know, and 2020, is something that Pence is going to have to wrestle with. And then you have January 6th, which obviously uh, creates huge complications for him, although Pence was governor uh, of Indiana, in addition to having you know a successful run uh, in the House of Representatives, in some ways as a better political, no, not in some ways, he has a better political resume than a Mike Pompeo, you know, member of the House, governor, and of course, Vice President Pompeo uh, is served as a member of the House of Representatives. I mean, it's rare that you have somebody, you know, because Secretary of State is, is significant, but politically, uh, obviously, he's only been elected, that is Pompeo, uh, just for a house seat, far more modest than, you know, what 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 Pence had to do. Um, I guess now that given that kind of uh, 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 kind of counter argument, in, react to that. And 
Uh, tell me a little bit about whether you think that is a better formula for Pompeo than Pence. I mean, there's definitely a view out there that the person who wants to, who can run in the Trump lane, right, provided Trump is not in that lane in 2024, is the one that has the best shot of winning, whether that is a, a Mike Pence, a Mike Pompeo, or Ron DeSantis. Right, right. Yeah, so I think taking your first point, um, Pence was, you know, he, he was governor of Indiana, he was a congressman, but his, his time as governor was marred by this religious freedom bill that he pursued and then eventually backed down on. Um, he started getting a lot of pushback uh, from the business community in his state. Pence had a similar situation um, with a marriage bill in Indiana. Um, and so his political stock was pretty low. And this is something that Trump has apparently talked about privately is, you know, I, I kind of rescued Mike Pence. He was going nowhere, you know, without me. Um, so, and, and I think just kind of a, on a personal level of, of, of charisma, um, Pompeo to me seems like the more impressive speaker. Um, he seems like the more impressive politician on a kind of uh, retail level. Um, so I think, I, think in I think in terms of analyzing the two of them as political talents, I see Pompeo as a little bit more well-positioned to navigate, um, you know, the whole Trump you know, how closely to tie himself to Trump. Right. The Trump and the, and, and the Republican primary should um, he enter enter the ring. Um, sure. Last thing on, on Pompeo, then I want to go a little deeper on, on Pence and then yeah. bring in uh, the, the Paul Ryan speech. All of these speeches are available, by the way, on the uh, Reagan Foundation page, I should note. Uh, so just put in uh, Reagan Foundation. You'll see the Time for Choosing series on the landing page. You can see all the, the speeches there. They're on YouTube of course, as well. Um, you know, when, when Secretary Pompeo uh, began his speech, and it was a long speech, Rack, right? It was probably about 50 minutes or so, uh, across a variety of issues. I mean, this, it went from the virtues and kind of the preacher Pompeo stuff to nuclear fusion and the bloat, you know, bloated budgets in the Office of Secretary of Defense. I mean, it was, it covered a lot of, of, of issues, uh, not the kind of discipline crafted speech you would get from a finished, you know, political consultant. Um, which contrasts perhaps with some of the other uh, other speeches, but Pompeo started saying, "Hey, th th this is Mike Pompeo unplugged, right?" And um, you know, certainly not letting his hair down in the way that Rocker would. But this idea that you kind of heard from him in a way you haven't heard before, and perhaps this is the voice that we would hear from uh, somebody who wants to be a leader of the Republican Party in the years ahead. Jack, did you like Mon Mike Pompeo unplugged? I mean, it seemed to me that you think that. This is a bit of an you know, authentic voice here that will resonate at the retail level. Yeah, I thought um, he was significantly less, uh, you know, kind of evasive or cagey than you saw him in a lot of his public appearances while he was with the Trump administration. Um, you know, obviously working for Trump, notoriously difficult job. It's hard to uh, it's hard to navigate um, the public spotlight when you're working for Trump. He famously doesn't like it when anyone kind of gets out there too much and detracts from his publicity. So that's a tough thing to navigate. I think now that he's out of the Trump administration, you see him charting a little bit more of his own course. Um, and, I, and I would imagine that he'll only kind of come more into his own as we get closer to 2024. Um, so I thought that I thought that his his Mike Pompeo unplugged uh, was working for him. Yeah. All right, let's let's shift to a couple of the other speakers as part of the Time for Choosing series. Again, the idea here is uh, of the series is to get 
different voices within the Republican Party trying to advance uh, perspectives on on different perspectives on what it might take for the Republican Party to, to frankly win again, certainly at the, at the federal level. Um, Mike Pence, former vice president, came out. I got a great crowd uh, at the Reagan Library in, in June. Um, very different from the Mike Pompeo speech. Uh, Mike Pence is, you know, former kind of radio host. I mean, he just speaks in a very finished and clear fashion. You know, Pompeo's speech at times um, you weren't kind of catching all the content, even though. You knew you liked it. Certainly, that was a reaction of the crowd, and you kind of wanted to hear it. Uh, but also, a lot more discipline, Jack, than 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 you probably uh, than we got from Mike Pompeo. Why don't you give us your take on uh, the Pence speech? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, when you listen to Pence speak, or even just read his speech, um, you can kind of see the logical connection and transitions, the kind of smooth transitions that you expect from more of a stump speech. Um, you were talking earlier about how the strength of the, the speaker series is that these are not the kind of speeches that you're going to see, you know, in Iowa on the campaign trail. And I think that was more true of Pompeo's speech than it was of Pence's. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Pompeo's speech um, kind of resonated more with me. Um, I thought it was, it seemed more authentic, more natural um, than Pence's. And again, I think a lot of it too, as so much in politics is, uh, just the person who's delivering it, right? The delivery, the tone, the kind of cadence. Uh, like you said, Pence was a radio host. You get the sense when he's speaking from a microphone that he's very aware of how he sounds. And that yes. he's kind of doing, he's kind of doing uh, his Mike, best Mike Pence interpretation or <laughs> uh, something along those lines. So uh, from that perspective, I thought Pompeo's was was more impressive. Um, and that's the kind of thing, I mean, he, he's the polar opposite of Trump in so many ways, right? The reason a lot of voters loved Trump is because they felt like this is probably how he's talking on the stump is probably exactly how he talks when he's in, you know, in private amongst his his friends. And I think you get almost the opposite of that with that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, and then uh, Pompeo was really sweeping in terms of issues and depth. I mean, he's quoting um, you know, just a variety of, of thinkers and 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 you know, kind of history, re historic references. I mean, it was just uh, in its sweep was more intellectual and and certainly less less disciplined. Um, did anything that surprise you, Jack, about the Penn speech? Uh, we'll get to one piece of it in a moment, which is where he addresses uh, uh, January sixth, uh, which was kind of a key element in in his speech. Um, but setting that aside, it was, you know, kind of an embrace of Reaganism plus an embrace of Trumpism equals a future is the way I, I recall the speech uh, with immigration and kind of countering the left in terms of like similar to Pompeo, uh, rescuing American history from, from the assault on the left is probably, you know, the, the way to summarize what both of them were saying. Uh, anything else there that surprised you or interest, interested you? We'll get to the... Uh, kind of the part of the constitution in a minute. Sure, yeah, I think um, it was uh, maybe not surprising, but um, I thought it was an ambitious move to try to really marry Reaganism and the history of the Republican party to Trumpism and our current moment in kind of as an explicit way as he did. Um, like you said, then he kind of went on to condemn what Trump Trump's actions around January 6th, but 
you know, like we were talking about before, he almost is left with no choice, right? Because he is this kind of traditional conservative character, but he was Trump's vice president and that's kind of his calling card, right? So, but I think he was pretty, um, he was pretty aggressive about saying, you know, I'm, I haven't left behind um, kind of the blueprint that Reagan laid out, you know, um, decades ago. Um, but but I'm also this kind of guy uh, of 2021, and I see clearly what our challenges are. So um, it, it was obviously his goal to do that. Um, I think maybe Pompeo pulled it off a little better than he did ultimately. But um, but yeah, yeah, Pompeo chose not to uh, include a, a a joke, a built-in joke like uh, Vice President Pence did, which. Uh, for those uh, uh, who haven't seen the uh, uh, speech by Pre Vice President Pence, uh, you might want to take a couple minutes, take a look at that. And Jimmy Fallon certainly had uh, his fun with it. But uh, it was actually an instance of dark humor, um, yeah. as I understood it, which were where Vice President Pence was reflecting on uh, kind of his state of being around January 6th um, and uh, uh, used a, a comical device to try to explain his perspective. I uh, won't say more about it, but let's talk about the, the pillars of the future Republican Party that uh, Mike Pence laid out, the, the last one being uh, the party, the Constitution. And I, I'll, I'll read the quote here um, and then um, and I'd love to get your reaction and, and share uh, kind of what interested you here, what surprised you and whether you think uh, at a political level, this will matter one way or the other for, for Mike Pence's future in the Republican Party. This is what um, Vice President Pence said. In the years ahead, the American people must know that our Republican Party will always keep our oath to the Constitution, even when it would be politically expedient to do otherwise. That we are the party that, as the Bible says, will keep our oath, even when it hurts. Very interesting device here. Pence frames it as a choice between the Constitution or fealty to Donald Trump. This is January 6th, of course, he's referencing, and then embeds kind of a biblical oath, a biblical framework uh, to explain his behavior. So you got the Bible plus the Constitution on one side versus fealty to President Trump on the other. Of course, that justifies and explains uh, Mike Pence's decision on January 6th uh, to not challenge uh, the electors. And obviously, it all played out from there with the significant and continued critique of President Trump and Mike Pence uh, for his, his conduct. What do you think of that device? Uh, and really, this was Vice President Pence's most expansive uh, uh, kind of extended treatment of January 6th from his perspective. Yeah, so I think it was, um, it was effective in the sense that I think what he's really trying to do is cleave apart loyalty to the man of Trump and loyalty to traditional conservative values, religious values, um, constitution, the values that are embedded in the constitution. You saw Trump throughout his campaign as his, and throughout his presidency, sometimes hold up uh, you know, the Bible, sometimes literally, uh, or hold up the constitution as kind of his guiding light but anyone who's familiar with Trump's background, his biography, I think would probably take a lot of that with a grain of salt. Um, and his personality, I think we now kind of understand is what attracted and coalesced a lot of his support. So I think what Pence is trying to do here is to make an appeal to people on the right and say, 
is your loyalty really to this man individually, or is it to these values that for decades conservatives have, you know, claimed to uphold? Um, and I think that's kind of what he has to do going forward, um, you know, as he tries to walk this tightrope, because he can't totally disavow his crowning political achievement of the vice presidency, um, but he also can embrace, fully embrace someone like Trump for all the obvious reasons. I mean, absolutely, you know, kind of a, a tough balancing act for him. One more quote here, because the language of being the party of the Constitution, you know, kind of plays at two levels. Uh, even uh, Mike Pompeo played with this a bit, where it could be interpreted as rescuing the Constitution from the assault of the left. And so it's a device in which really to get the party behind you and, and, and fire up the base, as it were, but also perhaps it's an admonition for those who went too far in the conservative movement uh, in supporting um, the, the protests, the, 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 the narrative of the steel uh, and, and kind of losing uh, those core values. Mike Pence is very clear that this wasn't a device to try to play both. He was saying that being the part, part of the constitution was what is at stake for the Republican party. Here's what he said. But you know, there's more at stake than our party and our political fortunes in this moment. If we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections. We'll lose our country. So now more than ever, America needs the Republican Party to be the party of the Constitution of the United States. So clearly, you know, again, expressing that the choice is quite clear and he was on the choice, he was on the side of the Constitution. But the argument is, he's saying this is wise not only because it's right, but it's also the formula for winning. Jack, what's your take as, as you know, the, the news editor at National Review and someone with real good sensitivity and familiarity with where Republican voters are? Is this going to be an issue that will help uh, Mike Pence? Is this going to be an issue that Republican voters in a, in a Republican primary will say, yeah, I want to be with the Constitution, not with a particular man or a moment. Yeah. So I think Pence is uh, taking a gamble here, as kind of all political messaging is. Um, he's basically betting on the idea that there are enough suburban voters who are former Republicans who drifted away from the party um, because of Trump. I think, um, and because of some of his kind of personality flaws, um, a lot of these are uh, suburban women who might return to the party um, if there's kind of a more staid, um, more responsible uh, person at the helm. I think those are the kind of voters, um, the kind of more upper middle class um, Republicans who like to hear about the Constitution. Um, I think the voters that Trump brought into the party um, lower income, lower education, um, more rural voters. That's not the kind of rhetoric that I think necessarily will appeal to them. Um, I think speaking at a more concrete um, foundational level about um, uh, the threat of immigration, the threat of outsourcing jobs, more concrete practical messaging, I think appeals to those folks. And I think that's why Trump was so successful. But I think by talking about some of these kind of more high-minded ideals, Pence is making a bet that he can bring back in some of those defectors um, who maybe were Romney Republicans um, 
and left uh, because of Trump. Let me push back on that real quick because, well, I hear the distinction you're making between kind of high-minded principles and that's not going to appeal to, you know, the, 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 the Trump Republican who liked kind of the, the, the fighter spirit with very kind of tangible, practical things. You know, let's hold China accountable. Let's hold Washington accountable. You know, let's get jobs back uh, here. You know, let's let's let's, you know, hold corporate America accountable. All, all that kind of fighting spirit. At the same time, you hear Mike Pompeo and others talking about how the left is, you know, trying to change our country. They, they use this language of the left is, you know, trying to radically alter our constitution. Mm-hmm. Is that tact, in terms of that language about the constitution, also appealing to high-minded voter, or does that language actually also appeal to the Trump Republican voter? It's not the same thing, but it's, it's a similar uh, kind of way of talking about the constitution. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think when kind of those what I referred to as high minded ideals are maybe wielded as a as a bulwark or as a defense against the threat of the left um, encroaching on education, encroaching culturally um, and kind of taking over uh, corporate America, um, as we saw over the last year. I think then it can be used as a more kind of populist uh, rhetorical turn to appeal to maybe some of those Trump voters. The question is, is that enough to overcome Trump personally, who might a year from now be saying, hey, remember when Mike Pence uh, caved to the left and he wouldn't overturn the electors? Um, or, you know, don't vote for Pompeo, my, my secretary of state, when you can have me, you know, the real thing. I think the question is, um, how much do they want to invest in trying to appeal to those real core Trump voters when still looming over this whole thing is the fact that Trump may jump in and those people aren't going anywhere if Trump's in the race, right? So it's a, it's a real balancing act. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to the, the first speech in the series. This is uh, former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Um, other than the language he used to talk about what the future of the party needs in terms of leadership, of course, Speaker Ryan uh, was quite clear that he is not interested in, in running uh, for the presidency in, in 2024, which makes him qualitatively different perhaps from uh, a Vice President Pence or Secretary Pompeo. Was there anything in the heavy kind of policy content of that speech that stuck out at you? Uh, I heard one critic of the speech say something like that was a speech Paul Ryan could have given in 2012 and 2016. In other words, the Paul Ryan project of smaller government, less spending, fiscal responsibility, unleashing you know, the free market was pretty much uh, what you heard in addition to uh, a push for uh, you know, diversity within the party um, and this uh, same kind of approach to talking about uh, an embrace of American history and, and, and responding to what a lot of people react to from, from the left in terms of uh, American history and American ideals. What stood out to you? Does anything surprise you, Jack? Any critique uh, holds, or or do you take a different view? Yeah, so I I think that that critique makes sense um, in the fact that Paul Ryan is still Paul Ryan. Um, When you hear that name, you think of tax cuts, you think of small government. I think a lot of the kind of Trump Republicans, the people who have been brought into the party over the last six, seven years, view him as kind of the, the totem of antiquated kind of sclerotic conservative politics, chamber of commerce, conservative politics that only cares about business and cutting taxes. 
Um, and I think he, he has that distinctive branding. Um, and I don't see him making much of an effort to discard it, um, which is probably wise because I don't know that he could kind of rebrand himself for the current era of Republican politics with, and incorporate those more nationalist populist strains. Um, but it's interesting because it, it, he almost, he, he is the most kind of consonant with what you think of as Reagan Republicanism too. So I thought yes. his, his speech kind of made the most sense on that front. He didn't have the kind of split screen of Pence saying, you know, I'm, I'm all about these Reagan ideals, but also Trump. Uh, so I think it kind of, it, it, it flowed from that perspective. I just don't know how effective it is in the current political moment we're in. Well, interesting you say that. And, and at one level, I, I get that, you know, it's vintage Paul Ryan. It's what, right. you know, made him uh, the the number two on the on the Romney ticket. It's why he became Speaker of the House. And uh, and it was his ideas uh, when he was working his way up through the House Budget Committee that really uh, became the critique on domestic policy, what you saw during the Obama years. So he, he, yeah, whether it's good politics or not within the Republican Party, uh, it's the man and, and that's what he believes. And he still thinks it's a winning recipe for you know, prosperity in, in this country. Um, but I do think there's more of a debate going on around this issue set playing out. Uh, it's not something we heard from Mike Pence, uh, not something we heard from Mike Pompeo. It is something I think we'll hear from as we have other speakers come, whether it's going to be Tom Cotton or, uh, or Tim Scott or, or Nikki Haley, all of which we expect to uh, participate in the Time for Choosing series. He is a market fundamentalist. That is, Paul Ryan is somebody who believes that government, to the best of its ability, should really not play uh, in the free market that, um, you know, kind of uh, having this common good capitalism that you see from people like Marco Rubio or you know Senator Hawley uh, is is something that you know he's he's not signing up for uh, and and this idea that uh, we're gonna have a you know uh, kind of government you know putting a thumb on the scale in terms of the free market uh, maybe vis-a-vis -vis China that's appropriate in some cases but generally Republicans shouldn't be there. Uh, right. That is something that hasn't quite played out in the speaker series yet as a debate, but it's something that Paul Ryan is not the only voice saying that we need to go ahead and continue to uh, pursue. Give me your take on, on that piece. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, he's one of a number of kind of traditional Republicans who are still um, insistent on small government, low tax is um, they view with skepticism this kind of emergent populist strain, which sees government as kind of a tool to affect um, the outcomes we want in terms of family formation, protecting middle-class jobs. Now, the question I think going forward will be, is the influx of government spending that we're seeing right now under Joe Biden, the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation, the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that are probably both going to pass in the next few days, Will that change the debate um, by the time Biden is leaving office? Will some of those more big government conservatives be somewhat chastened if we have runaway inflation, um, if Biden needs to uh, hike taxes? And will there be a resurgence of the kind of Tea Party era small government ethos and conservatism? Because if that happens, I think you could see Paul Ryan have somewhat of a resurgence. Um, these things shift pretty quickly. 
um, within five or so years, I think we could be looking at a, at a different Republican party. Um, but a lot of it hinges on how things go for the rest of the Biden administration and whether some of the spending policies that he's pursuing end up having the disastrous effects that a lot of people are predicting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good point right now during the Trump years, and it happens during pretty much all Republican administrations that uh, the fiscal hawks or the fiscal conservatives tend to lose their voice. President Trump uh was certainly not a fiscal conservative in in, in outlook and in, and in practice, uh, but yeah, with with inflation rising, with these huge uh, spending measures being considered from you know uh, promoted by the administration, considered by the Congress, you could really see a return uh, to you know this type of conservatism that Paul Ryan is advancing. Do you think the common good capitalism, which you you know I I threw that term at you. It's, you kind of said, okay, that reflects a populist outlook. Um, are, are you going to see some modified voices on that? Or do you think the Rubios and the Hollies are, are going to stick with that? I think they're going to stick with it for the time being. Um, I think, it, like I said, it would take a real shift in the kind of economic situation of the country. It would require that Joe Biden's policies really lead to runaway inflation, um, unemployment goes up, um, taxes are up. Um, then I think you could see um, Hawley and the Rubios of the world start to walk back a little bit towards the conservatism of their youth. Um, but like I said, I think for as long as the current um, conditions persist, where the economy is, you know, humming along fine, um, I think you'll see them cling to this new kind of common good conservatism, especially when it comes to China. Um, after the year we've just had with COVID, I think um, most Americans, I would, I would bet, have an appetite for maybe some increased cost on their consumer goods, maybe a little of economic pain, you know, in their in their pocketbook, if it means we're going after China and we're punishing China in any kind of way that's available to us. So that strain, which I think is something Trump really brought to the fore. Um, in terms of being super hawkish on China. I don't see that going anywhere. Yeah, I, I think that's here to stay. It will be interesting. We have uh, Nikki Haley, Governor Haley, coming out to the Time for Choosing series in October. She uh, participated, really entered this debate over to what extent Republicans will uh, advance policies where government's really getting involved in the economy. And, and she kind of sided squarely with being a market fundamentalist, you know, of, of kind of the... Uh, Paul Ryan ilk. Um, I wonder, uh, Jack, how much is this an inside the beltway uh, type policy argument, which obviously matters uh, in terms of a policy you might see uh, if any one of these uh, individuals became president of the United States, but does it matter in a primary? I mean, are we gonna see people attacking each other uh, over whether or not they do or do not support government trying to drive uh, uh, kind of outcomes by manipulating or, or incentivizing uh, the market, as opposed to just saying, let the market be, and the best thing we can do is, is stay out of the way. Yeah, so again, I think this goes back to the elephant of the room of Trump, who will make everything about himself, right? So Trump is much more likely to lash out at Nikki Haley and turn his base against her over her criticisms about January 6th 
than he is to say, you know, she's for lower taxes and small government. Therefore, you know, she's against my MAGA movement. Everything goes back to personal grudges and beefs with him. And that tends to suck all the oxygen out of the room and doesn't leave a lot of room for the kind of policy disputes that we're talking about. Um, so it could come down to that kind of personal loyalty test more than a what are your views on the size of government? Interesting. So to the extent you side with being a market fundamentalist, probably a safer place where, where you know, if you run afoul of President Trump, that's not going to be the area of critique of vulnerability. I do think in this series, it's one to look out for, because I think this is a, a major policy area where Republicans are increasingly choosing a side and, and, and debating, um, because perhaps the, the era where Americans uh, or conservatives want smaller government, perhaps is, is passing or certainly not a foregone conclusion. And it's about what kind of government involvement you want, as opposed to whether you want government involved at all. Again, uh, Secretary uh, Pompeo and Vice President Pence really didn't kind of put their thumb on the scale on this issue, but I think we're gonna see it uh, as a policy question for conservatives as part of the time for choosing series uh, in the, in the months to come. Last thing on Paul Ryan, then we'll get to our, our lightning round. Um, Jack, you'll be weighing in on, on your favorite Reagan items in just a minute here. But before we do, you know, you mentioned that even we're talking about market fundamentalism or common good conservative capitalism, uh, you know, there seems to be a, a President Trump calculus. You can't get away from it. Speaker Ryan, of course, uh, had only maybe a paragraph or two uh, where he, he addressed President Trump uh, and kind of his role in the future uh, of the party. And what Speaker Ryan said that made a lot of news is that he felt strongly that the, that we need leaders in the party uh, who aren't trying to kind of perform what he called a second-rate imitation, right? Um, right? Which he felt, I guess, had been proliferating uh, and appealing to GOP primary voters. Um, do you agree with that as a political matter that uh, we... The Republican Party to succeed to win needs to actually not find someone who looks and sounds uh, the most like President Trump. I think in order to win, whoever the nominee is has to incorporate um, some of the trends that Trump kind of elevated to the fore. I think that's just an absolute requirement. Anyone who has their eyes on the nomination has to be very hawkish on China, um, I think has to talk about the importance of middle class and working class jobs. Um, any coalition that loses um, a significant number of the voters Trump brought into the party, um, I can't see su being successful going forward because the Republican Party has jettisoned so many of the more higher income um, uh, coastal uh, suburban Republicans they used to rely on. So in their stead, you need to have um, a, a stronger working class coalition. So I think finding out how to keep those voters around while bringing back some of the, the defectors is going to be the name of the game in 2024 and kind of going forward. How you do that and how much you kind of lean on Trump's rhetorical style and his bombast um, I think will be an individual calculation for each candidate based on their kind of presentation and personality. Um, but if you look at someone like Ron DeSantis um, and others, 
being very combative with the media, I think, um, is always going to be a winner with this new um, coalition that Trump kind of pulled together. So that's one thing I think you'll see any candidate who, who wants the nomination kind of embrace. Yeah, I, well, no doubt that I think a common theme across the speakers, and we'll, we'll see if it stays true uh, with the speakers that will come uh, starting in, in September, we'll have one every month uh, throughout the end of 2021 and into 2022 is that we absolutely need to go ahead and maintain uh, some of these policies and and the key to winning is you know addition right you gotta you gotta maintain as much as you can those who voted for president trump and then bring on uh some of those uh voters uh, republican voters we lost which is most commonly referred to as a suburban you know mom but you got to continue growing supports within the Hispanic community, more diversity, uh, more support in the black community as well. Um, all right, well, we're gonna jump to our lightning round, Jack, a great discussion of, of the Time for Choosing series. Uh, Please that you got out there for one, maybe you'll come back for another. Uh, but before we do so, let's check your Reagan knowledge is required for any participant in, the, uh, in Reaganism. So uh, the lightning round, tell us your favorite book on President Reagan, your favorite, speech by President Reagan and your favorite uh, quote by President Reagan. Give us all three, two, or only one, if that's all you have to share. Sure. So I'll start with my favorite quote. Um, and, and you hear this one a lot, but uh, I, I just, I think it still is so impactful. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Yeah. Then going over to Jumping over to my favorite speech, um, it's it's a, I guess it's a bit cliche. I'm sure you'll have a lot of people say this, but the Berlin Wall speech for me um, is really just the kind of the height of of Reagan's presidency and and his overall uh, uh, message. You know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Um, that's a line that I heard from you know my dad and grandpa as as a little kid, and it was just such a, a kind of moment of pride for the U.S. Jack, um, you're in good company. We we uh, that probably is the most. Uh, popular speech to reference, or if not the speech, then, then, then the quote. Um, and we see that not as uh, being conventional, but reinforcing, uh, you know, kind of experts view on, on the most significant speech. What about your book? I'm embarrassed to tell you I've not read a full Reagan biography. So I got to correct that uh, as soon as possible. Jack, uh, you're lucky we're at the end of the show. Otherwise, we'd have to boot you, you know, uh, <laughs> at the start because of that. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll forgive you just between now and the next time we have you on. I look forward to hearing the one uh, that you read and giving us uh, uh, your review. <laughs> um, Jack Crow, uh, news editor at National Review. Thank you so much for uh, participating in the show today. We look forward to having you back only after you've read a Reagan <laughs> book. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Okay.